Section 15 of Five Years of My Life, 1894-1899. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Sue Anderson. Five Years of My Life, 1894-1899 by Alfred Dreyfus. Translated from the French. Section 15. In France, the Second Court Martial, June to September, 1899. On the morning of the 30th, the Sphex stopped, and I was informed that a boat would come to take me ashore. Nobody would tell me where the landing was to take place. A boat appeared. It merely brought the order to keep maneuvering in the open sea. My disembarkation was postponed. All these precautions, these mysterious goings and comings, made a singularly painful impression on me. I had a vague intuition of something sinister underlying them. The Sphex, having moved slowly along the coast, stopped toward seven o'clock in the evening. It was dark, the weather was thick, and it was raining. I was notified that a steam launch would come for me a little later. At nine o'clock the boat which was to take me to the steam launch was at the foot of the Sphex's companionway, the launch being unable to come near on account of the bad weather. The sea had become very rough. The wind blew a gale. The rain fell heavily. The boat, tossed by the waves, was dancing by the ladder. I jumped for it and struck upon the gunwale, bruising myself rather severely. The boat pulled away. Affected quite as much by the manner of the transfer as by the cold and penetrating humidity, I was seized with a violent chill, and my teeth began chattering. Butting our way crazily through the tossing waves, we came up to the steam launch, whose ladder I could scarcely climb, crippled as I was from the injury to my legs received when I jumped into the boat. However, I boarded the launch in silence. It steamed ahead for a time, then stopped. I was in total ignorance as to where I was or whither I was going. Not a word had been spoken to me. After I had waited an hour or two, I was requested to step into the small boat again. The night was still black. The rain kept pouring down, but the sea was calmer. I understood that we must be in port. At a quarter after two in the morning, we landed at a place which I afterward knew was Port Ouligan. There I got into a carriage with a captain of gendarmerie and two gendarmes. Between two ranks of soldiers, this carriage drove to a railway station. At the station, always with the same companions, and without a word having been addressed to me, we got into a train, which, after two or three hours of travel, arrived at another station, where we got out. There we found another carriage waiting, and were conveyed swiftly into a city and into a courtyard. I got out, and, looking about me, saw that I was in the military prison at Rennes. It was about six o'clock in the morning. The succession of emotions to which I was a prey may be imagined. Bewilderment, surprise, sadness, bitter pain, at that kind of a return to my country. 
where I had expected to find men united in common love of truth and justice, desirous to make amends for a frightful judicial error, I found only anxious faces, petty precautions, a wild disembarkation on a stormy sea in the middle of the night, with physical sufferings added to the trouble of my mind. Happily, during the long, sad months of my captivity, I had been able to steel my will and nerves and body to an infinite capacity for resistance. It was now the first of July. At nine o'clock that morning I was told that in a few minutes I should see my wife in the room next to the one I was occupying. This room, like my own, had a wooden grating which shut out the view of the courtyard below. It was furnished with a table and chairs. Here it was that afterward my interviews with my own people and my counsel took place. Strong as I was, violent trembling seized me. My tears flowed, tears which I had not known for so long a time. It is impossible for words to express in their intensity the emotions which my wife and I both felt at seeing each other again. Joy and grief were blended in our hearts. We sought to read in each other's faces the traces of our suffering. We wished to tell each other all that we felt in our souls, to reveal all the feelings suppressed and stifled during these long years. But the words died away on our lips. We had to content ourselves with trying to throw into our looks all the strength of our affection and of our endurance. The presence of a lieutenant of infantry who was stationed there prevented any intimate talk. On the other hand, I knew nothing of the events which had taken place during the past five years, and had returned with confidence, a confidence that had been much shaken by the varied events of the previous night. But I did not dare to question my dear wife for fear of exciting her grief, and she preferred leaving to my lawyers the task of informing me. My wife was authorized to see me every day for an hour. I also saw in succession all the members of our family, and nothing can equal the joy we had in being able to embrace each other after such a separation. On the 3rd of July, Maitre Demage and Maitre Labori came to see me. I threw myself into Maitre Demage's arms and was afterward presented to Maitre Labori. My confidence in Maitre Demage and in his wonderful devotion had remained unchanged. I felt at once the keenest sympathy with Maitre Labori, who had been so eloquent and courageous an advocate of the truth. To him I expressed my deep gratitude. Then Maitre Demage gave me, chronologically, the history of the affair. I listened breathlessly while they strung together for me, link by link, the fateful chain of events. This first exposition was completed by Maitre Labori. I learned of the long series of misdeeds and disgraceful crimes constituting the indictment against my innocence. I was told of the heroism and the great efforts of noble men, the unflinching struggle undertaken by that handful of men of lofty character, opposing their own courage and honesty to the cabals of falsehood and iniquity. I had never doubted that justice would be done. Therefore, Maitre Labori's account of these events was a great blow to me. My illusions with regard to some of my former chiefs were gradually dissipated. 
and my soul was filled with anguish. I was seized with an overpowering pity and sorrow for that army of France which I loved. In the afternoon I saw my dear brother Matthew, who had been devoted to me from the very first day, and who had remained in the breach during these five years, with a courage and wisdom that had been the noblest example of brotherly devotion. On the following day, the 4th of July, the lawyers handed me the report of the trials of 1898, the investigation of the criminal branch of the Supreme Court, and the final hearings before the United Chambers of the same court. I read the Zola trial during the night that followed, without being able to tear myself away from it. I saw how Zola had been condemned for having upheld the truth. I read of General de Boisdeffre's swearing to the authenticity of the letter forged by Henri. But as my sadness increased on reading of all these crimes, and realizing how men are led astray by their passions, a deep feeling of gratitude and admiration arose in my heart for all the courageous men, learned or ignorant, great or humble, who had cast themselves valiantly into the struggle. And history will record that the honor of France was in this uprising of men of every degree, of scholars hitherto buried in the silent labor of study or laboratory, of working men engrossed in their hard daily toil, of public officials who set the higher interests of the nation above purely selfish motives for the supremacy of justice, liberty, and truth. Next, I read the admirable report prepared for the Supreme Court by Maitre Molnar, and the feeling of esteem with which that inspired me for this eminent lawyer was strengthened when I made his acquaintance and was able to appreciate the rare quality of his intelligence. Rising early between four and five o'clock, I worked all day long. I went through the documents greedily, passing from one surprise to another in that formidable mass of facts. I learned of the illegality of my trial in 1894, the secret communication to members of the first court-martial, ordered by General Mercier, of forged or irrelevant documents, and of the collusion to save the guilty man. During this time I received thousands of letters from known and unknown friends from all parts of France, of Europe, of the world. I have not been able to thank all these friends individually, but I wish to tell them here how my heart melted within me at these touching manifestations of sympathy, how much good they have done, what strength I have drawn from them. I have always been sensitive to change of climate, and I was now constantly cold and obliged to cover myself warmly, although we were in the midst of summer. In the last days of the month of July, I was taken with violent chills and fever, followed by congestion of the liver. I was compelled to take to bed, but, thanks to vigorous treatment, was soon on my feet again. I then began to confine myself to a diet of milk and eggs, which I continued as long as I remained at Rena. During the trial, however, I added cola to it, so as to be able to withstand the strain and remain on my feet throughout the long, and seemingly interminable sittings. The opening of the trial was fixed for the ninth of August. I had to exercise great restraint, 
for I was anxious about my dear wife, who I saw was exhausted by the long-continued strain and impatient to see the end of this frightful situation. I was longing to see again my beloved children, who were still in ignorance of everything, and to be able to forget in a peaceful home life all the sorrows of the past, and to be born again to life. I shall not report here the sessions of the Herne court-martial, in spite of the plainest evidence against all justice and all equity, I was condemned, and the verdict was announced with extenuating circumstances. Since when have there been extenuating circumstances for the crime of treason? Two votes, however, were given for me. Two consciences were able to rise above party spirit, cleave to the higher ideal, and regard only man's inalienable right to justice. As to the sentence which five judges dared to pronounce, I do not accept it. I signed my request for a new trial the day after the sentence. An appeal from the verdict of a court-martial can be brought only before the military court of appeals, which decides questions purely of form. I knew what had already passed after the court-martial of 1894, and founded, therefore, no hope on such an appeal. My aim was to go again before the Supreme Court and give it opportunity to complete the work of justice which it had begun. But at that time I had no means of doing this, for in military law, in order to go before the Supreme Court, it is necessary to be able to produce either a new fact or the proof of false testimony provisions of the law of 1895. Hence, my demand for revision before the military courts was merely to gain time. I had signed my demand for a revision on the 9th of September. On the 12th of September, at six o'clock in the morning, my brother Matthew was in my cell, authorized by General Dugalifay, Minister of War, to see me without witnesses. A pardon was offered me, on condition that I withdraw my demand for revision. Although expecting nothing from my demand, I hesitated to withdraw it, for I had no need of a pardon. I thirsted for justice. But, on the other hand, my brother told me that my health, already greatly shaken, left little hope that I could resist much longer under the conditions in which I should be placed. That, Liberty would give me greater opportunity to strive for the reparation of the atrocious judicial error of which I was still the victim, since it would give me time, and time was the only object of my appeal to the military tribunal of revision. Matthew added that the withdrawal of my demand was counseled and approved by the men who had been in the press and before the world the chief champions of my cause. Finally, I thought of the sufferings of my wife and family, of the children whom I had not yet seen, and whose memory had haunted me day and night since my return to France. Accordingly, I agreed to withdraw my appeal, but at the same time specified unmistakably my absolute and unchangeable intention to follow up the legal revision of the sentence of Rennes, on the very day of my liberation, I published the following, expressing my thought and my unconquerable purpose. 
quote, The government of the Republic gives me back my liberty. It is nothing to me without honor. Beginning with today, I shall unremittingly strive for the reparation of the frightful judicial error of which I am still the victim. I want all France to know by a final judgment that I am innocent. My heart will never be satisfied while there is a single Frenchman who imputes to me the abominable crime which another committed. February 1901 End of Section 15 End of Five Years of My Life, 1894-1899 by Alfred Dreyfus.